It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. The third and final piece in our radio art series on the elements from the Radio Sonideros Collective. It was first broadcast on the Staten Island Ferry as part of the FM Ferry Experiment. On previous episodes, you heard Air and Earth by Claire Fox and Adolfo Guzman Lopez, respectively. This last piece about the Los Angeles River is called Water and was produced by myself, Sarah Harris, and features the poetry of the co-founder of Friends of the Los Angeles River, Louis McAdams. What is a river? Little boys throwing rocks in to hear them plot. Bigger boys on their mopeds. Big boys drinking port wine, smash their bottles, showering the concreted river shoulder with glittering glass. Pelicans dive into a school of fish just downstream from the Anaheim Street Bridge in Long Beach. The distant Vincent Thomas, barely visible as the rain descends. That's the sound of 10 gallons of water entering my house through a pipe in the shower from the river and leaving my house through a drain to the river as I bathe. It doesn't pay to be merely pictorial. Pelicans, you must be the agents of your own survival.
This is the sound of a rainstorm on my house near the river during the rainiest season ever on record in Los Angeles. It was 2005. I think of the river the way it reads in the Sam Shepard story, Cruising Paradise, a huge concrete serpent, a dumping ground for murder victims. This is the sound of someone washing their car and wasting water on a small street outside my house near the river in Los Angeles during the driest year on record. It is 2007. I think of the river beside a freeway off-ramp as rollerbladers bent into it, spandexed buttocks rotating, roll downstream. sound of 5.7 gallons of water leaving my house through a sewer to the river and returning to my house through a pipe in the toilet from the river I think of William Mulholland's gentle, limpid stream coursing from a pharaoh's forehead or from the brow of a Rhine maiden, green-eyed and coffee-colored, a bracelet of drowned children wrapped around her wrist, descending from the mountains east of Irwindale into the Jardin des Rocas. This is the sound of 29.8 gallons of water as it enters my garden through the hose that leads to the river and leaves my garden through the earth. The river is a rigorous mistress but when you tickle her with your deeds, you can hear laughter from beneath her concrete corset.
now on to some urban planning that will greatly affect life along the Los Angeles River. Before our current city council experiences a majority overhaul with seven new members to be elected next month, the Lame Duck City Council will be voting on a landmark development plan that will change the transportation landscape for the city of Los Angeles. This is called the Cornfields Arroyo Seco Specific Plan, or CASP for short. It's a small area in northeast LA just outside of downtown. It's about 660 acres, and it's basically going to be the blueprint for all future development in the city of LA, and I suspect um, other cities like Chicago, Dallas, um, Houston, Atlanta are looking to us as a potential model for development as well. What's your name and where are we at right now? My name is Sissy Trin, and we are at the Southeast Asian Community Alliance, or SICA. We're a small nonprofit, and we work with high school students to get them involved in making things better in their neighborhoods. And the reason that I chose to come to the Southeast Asian Community Alliance is that I know Sissy has been amazingly adept at explaining this this 25-year development plan for the city of Los Angeles in a way that makes it understandable. What was the genesis of this? Why did it even come about? Basically, how cities have been designed for the last 50 years, for the most part, has been under a model called suburban sprawl. The idea is get away from the dirty inner city core, you know, to these newly developed suburban tracks where you get your own home with a backyard, a front yard, you can have a barbecue, your own garage, and you don't have to deal with neighbors because you got your own home, right? And then you drive to work and you drive to shop. Um... Over the last about 15 years, what cities have realized is with budget cuts, with the rise in greenhouse gases and pollution, that that lifestyle is no longer financially or environmentally sustainable. So the impetus of this plan was really how do we change how we live to reduce greenhouse gases to support um, cities to be able to afford to provide infrastructure? Because when you have suburban sprawl, you have miles and miles of more road and more sewer lines and more lights that you have to maintain. Who in Los Angeles came up with an idea to take a different approach to how we're moving forward. So it's become a part of a nationwide trend called transit-oriented development, or TODs. Um, specifically in the city, the plan was a project of Jill Soriel from Councilmember Ed Reyes's office, who's the environmental deputy, and also Claire Bowen, who is a senior planning deputy in the city. So both of them are um, strong environmental advocates, and so they started developing this plan about, I believe, in 2006, 2007. So it's been like a six- to seven-year process to get this plan through, and it's incredibly ambitious. It's never, it's something that we've never seen before in the city. This is a whole plan that's supposed to create, turn this whole neighborhood into a comprehensive TOD. And why this neighborhood is really desirable, aside from being next to the L.A. and the uh, Arroyo Seco rivers, is it's around the corner from Union Station. It's a hop, skip, and a jump from downtown, which is a job center, as everybody knows. And there's tons of bus and rail lines, right? You've got 14 buses, three rail stations. This is 
probably one of the most transit-rich neighborhoods in the city. So how do we get more people who live out in the suburbs to move into this neighborhood and take care, take advantage of those resources? Well, we got to provide them with housing and jobs. And that was the goal of the plan. And it's along the Los Angeles River and also abutting a pretty industrial area between East Los Angeles and the river. The neighborhood itself is so poorly planned currently. I've um, taken many, many um, outsiders on tours here and we'll be walking along and you'll see a bunch of single family homes and kids playing in the street and elementary and preschools and then turn the corner and you'll see like big rig trucks ride, you know, driving down 50, 60 miles an hour trying to get to the five freeway, driving along like main streets and spring. Um, and you'll see factories spewing out tons of pollution right next to a daycare center. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city. And so a lot of the decisions on what to put where weren't made in a thoughtful, like, this is how we want to see this neighborhood kind of unfold. So as we're looking at this area right now, if you could describe the way that um, that most of the spaces are used currently, and then we're going to look at the way that the spaces are going to be used once a change happens. Okay, so in the area, you have um, one of the largest housing projects, public housing projects, William Mead, in probably the city. And then surrounding it are factories and warehouses and basically a bunch of roads that are used as secondary highways. And what that means is that Um, A lot of us don't like riding the freeways during rush hour because we don't want to get stuck in traffic. So we always look for secondary streets and back alleys to avoid that traffic. So Spring and Main Streets are that for a lot of downtown commuters. And so if you're trying to walk along Main or Spring at, let's say, 9 a.m. or 5 p.m., it can be pretty dangerous because speeds can go up to like 50 miles an hour. And then right behind William Mead also is um, a lot of the Alameda rail lines, right? So the rail that connects um, the ports to L.A. to the rest of the country. So all the um, commercial and industrial shipping that gets on to trains gets, you know, right past William Mead. And in fact, when we were doing our research, what we found was that the area around William Mead has worse air quality than the city of Vernon. So this this is an area where there are these little areas of very old, you know, 1870, 1880, 1890s homes that are just kind of next to the river and you get the sense that they've been squeezed out by the industry that's moved in in the change that could happen if this plan is put in place, what would this neighborhood end up looking like? We're talking about multi-story, like 100-unit apartment buildings, right? So obviously, a small homeowner is not going to be able to compete with that in terms of the ability to stay. There's going to be a lot of pressure for them to move out. And so what we've been trying to do is make sure that the new developments that come in do include some level of affordable housing, because this is a neighborhood that is extremely low income. So the area um, in Solano Canyon and William Mead, the the 2000 census basically said that the median income was $12,000 a year for a family. But now what we're talking about is the possibility that a serious form of gentrification could be happening 
because of this new plan that is, for all intents and purposes, extremely well-intentioned in that it would improve air quality, it would get people, as you said, out of their cars and onto the rails and biking and walking, um, which sounds like a you know an urban utopia, um, the vertical city, but why is it important to make sure that there is low-income housing available in this new development? Well, aside from the fact that 100 years ago, the only people, people of color could only live in this neighborhood. They weren't allowed to live in other neighborhoods. They were like basically forced into this area and over the last 100 years have worked really, really hard to make things better by opening up their own shops, creating their own like nonprofit or community organizations to support each other. And now as they're starting to see the fruits of their labor, now they're going to get pushed out. But even if you don't care about racial equity or um, economic justice, you know, if you care about environmental justice, then you have to support including affordable housing in these plans. So there was a study that came out of Northeastern University at the Dukakis Center that found that if you develop or you create transit-oriented developments um, without including affordable housing, what happens? Um, Racial diversity declines, income goes up, and car ownership comes up, goes up, and greenhouse gases goes up. Why? Because the folks that currently live in low-income areas that are near transit tend to use transit, tend to be core transit users. And so in this area of like Lincoln Heights, Solano Canyon, and Chinatown, one in five families don't own a car. That's higher than the city of San Francisco. So what's going to happen if they can't afford their rents? They're going to move out to El Monte, to Pomona, to you know, Winnetka, all these like far-flung neighborhoods, not well served by transit. So they're going to have to buy a car, right? And of course, they're not going to be able to afford a Prius. They're going to buy the gas guzzler that's like 10 years old or 20 years old because that's what they can afford. And then they're going to drive back in the city. Where's the plan right now in terms of the city process? Like how likely is it that new zoning will be happening here? Oh, it's going to happen. Basically, the typical process is that the city planning department goes through a bunch of different meetings to get input from stakeholders, proposes a plan, and then goes through environmental review before going through City Hall. It's in the process of going through City Hall. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City, that's H E A R in the City.org. And at KPFK.org, you can like us on Facebook if you like. And visit us at our website, Here in the City.org. Well, Valentino or Valentinus or Valentine uh, was a Christian martyr that, according to legend, uh, was imprisoned for his uh, in Rome for his uh, preaching of Christianity. But while well, he used to to marry people, and when he was free, carry messages of hope to those people who were condemned to death, and he will sign it from your Valentino, from your Valentine. That's where we get the the expression uh, from your Valentine. This Thursday will be Valentine's Day. So I thought we would dust off my conversation with Dr. Isamur Flores Peña. He's an anthropologist and a leukemia priest. He's also an author on the multiple iterations of love. 
Well, all religions, there, is, there isn't a single religion who doesn't have uh, a god or goddess of love. You know, we have Kama in India. We have, um, we have uh, Hathor in ancient Egypt. Uh, you know, there's many, many uh, deities throughout history that have to deal with love. In Afro-Caribbean religion, is Oshun. She is the goddess of love. Uh, and we, we have the need and we find the necessity of personalizing love and, and, and give it a body, give it a, a personality. Someone that, can, that can, we can address when love needs to be dealt with in more ways than just pretty words. I know that in the Greek language, especially in ancient Greek, there are many words for to love. It's not one thing. It's many different levels. And I'm wondering if in your research and travels and experience, if you've encountered many different levels of what love is. Well, I think that uh, the Greeks, you know, like they say, the Greeks have a word for everything. But the, the, truth, the truth is that there is not one love. And it is interesting that Eros was the first, the first god to emerge from chaos. You know, er, you know, you have erotic love, the the love that needs to possess, to to be fulfilled. But there is also there is also the love that that doesn't need to possess, the love that just needs to be given, in order to feel fulfillment. And we talk about platonic love, and we talk about, about agape, and we uh, and we talk about all these different uh, feelings. And sometimes, uh, and many times, we go through all of them. We need we need to we have the need to possess. We need the we have the need to to be to become physical. Sometimes we that that physicality is not there. Just the presence of the person of the beloved is enough. And mystical poetry is full of that. You know, Saint John of the Cross in the 16th century and Saint Teresa. The great mystics talk about this idea of uh, the soul needing to meet its maker and, and embrace it in love. And mystic poetry, you know, Sufi poetry in Islam, for example, speaks about the same thing, this idea of love. Uh, it has nothing to do with possession. It has to do with union, this mystical union uh, with the divine. And I guess it's cultural. Uh, depending on how we consider uh, culturally how male and female or how humans need to relate to each other, love will define that relationship. And the the societal or the, the extension beyond just the individual and the love for society or for a place, I'm thinking about this in terms of love and the capacity for a society to love unconditionally. Even if we don't know it, even if we don't notice it, someone is worthy to be loved just because they exist. And that is also a feeling, uh, a feeling that, that then gets expanded to not just our immediate um, environment, but it gets expanded to society at large. And then we talk about love for the environment. We talk about love for Mother Earth. And uh, the idea of who's worthy of love goes with the, the vision that that society has of itself. Uh, we are, you know, in our society, we're breaking barriers. We're trying to break barriers and, and say that everyone is valuable, that everyone is, uh, is, a, is a child of the cosmos, of the universe, of the creator. And therefore, as children of the, of the same creator, we need to love each other and be our brother's guardian. Sometimes we behave contrary to that, picking and choosing who we love and to what extent. 
and this is part of many of the social injustices that you see in our own modern society and in our own uh, world, you know, that we decide who's worthy of love and to what level, and that's how we move our aid, maybe may that be physical or food-wise or access to education, access to medicine. If you look at it, you know, these are all decisions based on who is worthy to be loved. This is a very important point because presented with the myriad of opportunities and options of very worthy causes of meaning if worthy is gauged by need because somebody is suffering, there are no end to worthy causes. And yet people decide, I think, largely based on something called the narrative. It's the story that's told. And so how much does that have to do with our own perceptions of worthiness and love? You know, you, we are taken by the narrative. We are people of narrative. We love narrative. You know, who doesn't like a good story with a great ending? But in this case, what, what you're trying to do is to find out how that narrative fits in your philosophy of living. The last question I want to ask you is for somebody to live in a way that their heart can be more open to really see someone for who they are and offer them their heart. What quality do people possess that's unique in being able to do that? Empathy. Empathy. I mean, uh, it was Ruben Darío who said that the heart has reasons that the head can never understand. You know, and sometimes you need to go beyond physical appearances. This is why love needs to be blind. It must be blind. So we can go uh, beyond the physical shape, beyond the, the likes of dislikes of what we of the person, male, female. It doesn't matter, child, old, young. It doesn't matter. You have to go uh, uh, beyond that and look at and, um, uh, and that empathy. That's what gets you there. Because if you, you know, we all go, you know, we have the saying, don't judge a book by its cover. That's us. You know, we, of course, like a person who's dressed nicely, smells gloriously, right? It's very close to what our idea of perfection is, but it takes considerable effort to go to a person that is just the opposite of that and extend our hand. It's, ve it's very hard. It's very hard. And, and it's hard because it goes against our aesthetic judgment, and sometimes you have to put that aside. Uh, Mother Teresa, for example. You know, that's a perfect example of uh, love that goes beyond anything. And there's, like Mother Teresa, there's many people around the world. Some of them, not, they're not famous. They're just people who just go and do the right thing all the time. You know, people who teach. People who, who help people in the streets. People who uh, care for others. But if you ask these people... Why are you doing that? They're not looking at this person the way it is now. It's, they're looking at the, at the thing that they can become. And in that sense, uh, probably to, to end up, it, it is uh, this wonderful chapter in Cervantes' uh, Don Quixote. And, you know, there's uh, this wonderful scene in which Don Quixote, of course, is charging against the, the, the windmills. And obviously there are windmills and he doesn't believe it. And he gets all 
thrashed all over the place. And Sancho comes in and calls him everything in the book, how crazy he was, how ridiculous he was. And he keeps just, you know, insulting him and his judgment. And uh, Don Quixote says something that I think is a great, is one of the most uh, grandiose moments in Spanish literature. He said, Sancho, I know who I am and who I could be. And that is the essence of love. Self-love. You, you can't love anyone if you don't love yourself. How could you? Dr. Flores Peña, thank you very much My for joining pleasure. us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Next week, the station will be on Fund Drive. We'll be back after that. In the meantime, visit our website here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To yapping on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace.